reading, uh, reading this, this section of Scripture, the first six verses of 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm sure a couple of you, if not many, are already planning your beach vacation this summer, hopefully. I know sometimes we go down to San Diego, and it's like all we see is Diamondback hats, Cardinals hats, ASU hats. We're like, everyone's here. Everyone showed up. What's up, AZ? Um, well, we didn't get to go to the beach last year, but this year we're going again with the family. Uh, and last time we were there, we had a, uh, we had a moment of, of difficulty getting to the beach, and that was finding the parking, which was impossible, and then getting out of the car with our heavy cooler, maybe a child, a tent, a shade, all of these things, a chair. Um, and we got out of the car, started walking down the steps towards the beach, and what we encountered before us was the sprawling dunes of sand that were, uh, that was before like the firm sand you want to get to to put your umbrella in. This was just like a, a, a ground that would just give under your feet. You could go as deep as your knees trying to walk through this, and it was so exhausting just to walk over these little dunes, little pieces of sand, all piled up, all working together against me to walk across uh, to them. And I bring this kind of goofy thing up this morning to talk about a tiredness or a weariness that can set in that goes beyond what a normal uh, being tired is. There's two levels of being tired. And one could come from your work or your family or just your normal day-to-day and the first type of tired, you can get over with some rest. If you manage to take a nap this afternoon or stay away from your email, you can kind of clear your headspace a little bit and recover from the weariness. You might have even just mentioned this weariness to someone during greeting time. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're good. We're tired. Yeah, that. That's the first level of tiredness. We're kind of always in it a little bit and recovering a little bit from it at the same time. But then there's a second type of weariness, a weariness and a tiredness that, that cuts to the core. This is what the scriptures would call losing heart. It's, it's a weariness that is not so easily plumbed out of our system as it often comes with despair, a loss of enthusiasm for life as the weariness sets into a deep fatigue and it can almost be like the color starts to go out of our world. Maybe it's even like a spiritual depression. And the normal ways of resting don't offer any relief. We start to say things like, I'm done. Or, I just don't think I can keep doing this. Or, my heart isn't in this anymore. 
This passage this morning speaks to this loss of heart, this deep weariness, this deep discouragement that we face. And Paul has good reason for bringing this up. He's writing to the church in Corinth. This is the letter of 2 Corinthians. He's writing to a church he started, but if you read 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians or Acts, and you you read about Paul's ministry to the church in Corinth, you learn that this church was a constant source of conflict for him. We have accounts of him appearing to them in person and much tears being shed, much grieving between him and the leadership of the church. But we also have, that's, that's interpersonal, we also have the from a distance, the letters he wrote. We have an account of a severe letter or a letter of tears that he wrote that has been lost to history. We don't have this third or I guess one and a half Corinthians, wherever it would fall. It's gone and the Lord has seen over that. Because Paul was grieved over issues going on in this church, both sin issues and faithfulness issues. And for that reason, the letter of 2 Corinthians that we're just going to be in this fourth chapter in, this letter is kind of frenetic. It's almost like a train that, you know, can kind of jump off the tracks, maybe somehow get back on, or it's going all over the place. There's little rabbit trails of of grief or uh, of uh, encouragement or exhorting that he goes on, much more different than like another letter that Paul wrote, like Romans, where he's tracing a slow, logical argument through that we like, that we're attracted to that, that makes sense in our brains. This is similar in some ways but it's filled with the passion and grief of Paul, who's, who's almost like a parent, like swooping in on a, on, a, on a wayward child, both in a righteous anger to correct, but also a righteous grief. It's just grieved that this is even the situation, that I have to be the corrector in this way. This is not how I want it to be. It's equal parts of that. And so with all of that taken into account, When you look at the the whole of Paul's ministry, really the church in Corinth would have had to be near the top of the list of reasons why he might have wanted to at times lose heart. The back and forth and the grief settling deep within him ministering to this church was a source of losing heart that he had to resist as he tells us here. And so he says, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So you can see in one way he's talking about the ministry he has as a pastor to churches, but he's also in a meta way talking about the ministry he has with this church in Corinth. It's like, I have to return to the mercy. This is a mercy from God that I have this. And he mentions losing heart because there are two big burdens that he is carrying as he talks about in this passage two big burdens that Paul brings up that would often lead us ourselves to lose heart. Two burdens that are a source of weariness. The first burden is this. The work is hard. The work is hard. That's the first burden Paul brings up in the second verse. And we'll get there in just a second. The second burden that Paul is carrying and that we struggle with as well is that the results aren't there. So the work is hard and the results aren't there. So as you can see, this is totally not relatable for us. 
and has only to do with the Apostle Paul uh, himself. No, this is something we can all relate to very much so. The work being hard in our lives could apply in many different ways. The labor we do as Christians is difficult, plus the results we're seeking to see, the fruit that we're trying to get to come out of this endeavor is not coming up. And we, like Paul, feel these burdens and feel these discouragements and feel this weariness set in to the point where we ourselves may start to lose heart. But Paul, even in this first verse, returns to the mercy of God. He dwells on the mercy of God. It's in his mind. It's what's causing him not to lose heart. And that's where we'll go. We're going to look at these first two burdens, the two burdens that we all experience, and then we'll look at the mercy of God and how that energizes and enlivens and causes Paul himself to take heart rather than to lose it. Here's the first burden. The burden that the work is hard. In verse, the second verse, Paul lists a thing that he does not do. Actually, two things that he does not do. Then he lists something that he does do in this work. Here, but we have renounced disgraceful, this is verse 2, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul says, first, I have renounced disgraceful and shame underhanded ways. Disgraceful, of course, we know what that means. The underhanded there just being a deceitful twisting of words, which Paul says is disgraceful. I have renounced doing this in my ministry, in my preaching, in my teaching, in my counseling, in any role I fulfill as a leader. I have renounced being underhanded with God's truth that I have been given. Okay, we would hope he would say that. Here's the second thing he says. I refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. He is saying, I, I categorically do not get into craftiness. Again, in my preaching, in my teaching, in my leadership, in my counseling, I don't manipulate with God's word. I'm not cunning with it or tampering with it or tweaking it. He doesn't do either of those things. But rather, he commends himself with an open statement of the truth, he says. The truth put plainly. He commends to others conscience before the sight of God. Now, what Paul is describing here is a great burden. It is a hard work, and it is very hard for us to do, as it was for him. The work is hard and can lose to, lead to losing heart. Hear about the, this first part, the part that Paul does not do. He renounces deceit. He refuses to tamper. Well, how crucial is honesty to the Christian, and yet hard it is for us to often stay congruent with the whole truth. Surely this is a timeless truth, true in Paul's day as it is in ours. There are true things that God has said that we often are tempted to tamper with or tweak on our own. We are tempted to do it when God's truth is unappealing to our culture or when we become strangers in our own social circles. This can happen for anyone. We, depending on who we're with, we can kind of get clever with our wording, even ambiguous. But it's not done out of love for the person to try to create a smooth on-ramp for them to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually done to preserve ourselves and to kind of not say what, what we know to be true about God's word because we are afraid of what will happen to us, our own embarrassment. 
We're tempted to do it then. We're also tempted to do it when someone close to us is maybe in sin or in need of correction and we just pile on excuses or say, this is just them or this is just how they are. When God might be leading us to, in love, challenge them or at least speak to them and be in their lives, we're being underhanded with the truth when we downplay areas of ministry God has called us to. Thirdly, we are tempted to do this in ourselves almost all of the time almost all of the time in our hearts we know the truth of god and yet we at least shroud it to blunt what it means in our lives or there is a tendency to parcel out god's truth to read it and say well this is clearly the most important thing because this is what i'm good at but this is more peripheral because this is a weakness for me we don't let the Bible define what's true for us or God's word. It's so we're parceling it out. You can see we do this with across the board, even inside ourselves. And this is very difficult to do, what Paul was saying, to renounce the tampering and to keep an open uh, commendation of the full truth. To give you an, an example of this, I want to use a cliche but I, I'm wondering how many people have heard this. It's a mega cliche. I know you've heard this in like preaching and leadership talks. And that is the airplane that's one degree off winds up super far from its destination, right? So I was like, okay, I want to use this in the sermon because it illustrates this need to stick close to the truth. But is it true? So I have a friend who's a pilot and I texted him and he said, it's true, but it's not true if you're flying 10 miles. If you're only flying 10 miles and you set the plane and it's one degree off, you're only going 10 miles, you'll be close. But if you're going a long distance, being a little bit off over time will deviate you more and more. And that actually, analogy holds up great here because I want to suggest to you that God's truth is a long flight, a long distance, a journey of our whole lives discovering God's truth. And so we need to be vigilant, as it says in the scriptures, to renounce means of tampering with God's truth. Paul uses strong language. I refuse it. I renounce it. Oh, may we too try, as God enables us, to refuse and renounce being a degree off from the truth that he has given to us. I want to add that we, that we do praise God for his grace as he calls us to repentance and lead us on. Of course, we don't have it all figured out from day one. God does not hold us accountable to that. But in the heart, as we're seeking him, we want to be aligned to his truth, as Paul says to us here, as the scriptures speak to us. That is hard enough. That is a lifelong calling. That is a hard calling. But the work gets still harder in this burden because of what Paul says that he does do. By an open statement of truth, he commends himself to everyone's conscience. Now, surely nothing is more wearisome than this, to continually put yourself out there again and again to the people you love. And more than that, Paul says everyone, even the groups outside of those you love that you see and you say, I think I relate to that person, or you see that the other person, you say, I don't think we'd have anything in common. We might have strong disagreements. Paul's saying, I am commending myself to everyone's conscience at a deep level. So Paul remains open to all, knowing that God wishes all would be saved. And this is a ministry that I, I would define as a heart-to-heart. -heart. Paul's 
heart focused on the truth, appealing to their conscience. And here in this verse, this little snapshot, we get a kind of a picture of the working out of that famous phrase in Ephesians, right? Speak the truth in love. You've heard this? I want to speak the truth in love. I want to speak the truth, but it's got to be in love. I want to love, but I'm not speaking the truth. So hard is it, so hard is it to do this, to speak the truth in love. And we see that hard is the work. To hold the truth in one hand, heavy as it is, shaping as it is, and yet hold God's love in the other and try to be offering and living in both, not deviating from both. This is a high calling and a very sapping work. It drains the heart. And that is a good thing. God fills us up. But over time, this work is hard in all the different spheres, and it can cause a loss of heart. It is a great burden to lift, and it can be a discouragement that comes with that. That's the first burden that Paul outlines for us. The second one is that the results aren't there. Paul is not only engaging in this work that is hard, but he says, look, here's the second burden for you. The results aren't there. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of the world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's verses 3 and 4. So Paul pauses for a moment, and some scholars think that even in this little verse, he's defending his own ministry a little bit against the church in Corinth because it's been brought to him, you know, you're a minister of the gospel. We don't see the fruit. We don't see the people being saved. Are you tampering with the truth? Of course, he just defended against that. Are you veiling the gospel in your ministry, Paul? And he says, look, uh, even in my ministry, it's not as though the gospel in a sense is veiled in a literal sense because I'm proclaiming Christ. And yet, and yet in another sense, it is as if it is veiled because a power beyond my own is working even in those I am trying to minister to to keep them from seeing the light. Think of a, a we have many house plants in our house. Think of one that requires, you read on the tag when you buy it, requires direct light. And you put it in the window and it starts to do well. Well, what if you just roll it under your bed? Roll it under your bed, no more direct light, and you watch it start to wilt. And you ask, is the sun veiled? No, the sun has not been veiled. But in a sense, the plant has been veiled from the sun, clearly. And so Paul says, so is my work of ministry, trying to apply the direct light. And yet there remains an obstacle that is beyond my ability to push through. Paul basically is saying, I'm, I'm doing this great work that is difficult, and yet there are times of zero progress, zero results, zero achievement because of a blinding of a mind that I cannot control. It is as if my work is dead on arrival. The results are not there. And we feel this. Like this, this hits us because we too have engaged as Christians in the work of discipleship, in child rearing, in mending relationships within a family, in seeking our own internal stuff to iron that out and minister to our neighbors. And all along the way, sometimes the results just are not there, no matter how hard the work has been. And Paul says, this is what happens in my ministry. The results are not there. 
Now, Paul specifically uses the term veiled. He's referring to something he had just talked about, and that is in the previous chapter, he talked about Moses' veil. Moses, when he came down with the Ten Commandments, his face was bright. It was shining because he had been in God's presence, and it, it made even the priests afraid. Uh, and so Moses had to put a veil over his face to kind of uh, ever, get everyone to calm down. Uh, and not be freaked out when he came out of God's presence. This is something that's ongoing. And so Paul's addressing this, and he's talking about the gospel being veiled. He's saying, it's not, it is, it, they're saying, is it veiled like the Ten Commandments, basically like the Old Covenant, like the Ten Commandments were veiled? Is this new gospel veiled? No, I'm preaching it and proclaiming it, and yet this power goes beyond what I can deal with. And this is a horrifying thought for us as Christians, that even as we engage in our lives in ministry, that this veil would be there, that, that we would almost be like firing like a, a, a little BB gun or something or a water gun at like a, like a steel vault that's like shut and locked and we can't get through. And it feels puny to attempt to do anything about this. Thankfully, we know we serve a greater God who will work in these opportunities. And we'll get more to that later. But this is what the scriptures testify to. Sometimes the results aren't there. And that is a real thing that Paul is dealing with. I want to quickly address the phrase God of this world because it is a little striking in this scripture. This refers to Satan. This refers to the great enemy of, of God and the church, not in a dualistic sense. I want to point that out where Satan is this kind of um, also eternal being locked in equal combat with God. That's not true at all about him. In fact, Christ has already triumphed over sin and the grave, as we know through his resurrection, that we will be like him, which means Satan does not have victory over the church, period. And yet, Paul gives Satan his due here. He says that, uh, that, that this power is great and is working in the world, and we, we need not to shy away from that, but to recognize that until Christ returns again, there will be a level of influence and power that God has allowed Satan to carry out even in this world. We see this throughout the scriptures. In the first chapter of Job, we see Satan in this very strange, uh, very interesting, but I am glad I'm not preaching on Job 1 this morning, uh, passage where Satan comes into the presence of God and says, can I tempt Job? Can I try to throw him off track? He only believes in you because you're good to him. I want to thwart that. And God says, all right. And Job is all about that working out. Martin Luther in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress of Our God, also gives Satan his due when he says, uh, his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. I also feel weird singing that song. Like, I mean, I love that song. What a, what a jarring line to return to. And yet, it only magnifies the glory of Christ that will ultimately overcome Satan. And praise God for that. But this is the revelation we've been given in Scripture before. Paul says this level of influence is going on, and we don't need to be deceived. We don't need to despair. We don't need to lose heart, but we need to recognize that this is a reality of our ministry as a church. Paul, Paul in his ministry, is just talking about that the results aren't there, right? And, and, and I almost think of Genesis chapter 3, where the sin happens. And God tells Adam and Eve, because of sin, there will be thorns and thistles that grow from the ground every day. All of you try to do will be against this. And then, and then 
Fast forward even to the New Testament in in Matthew 9, that great passage where Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray that people would go into the harvest, and we say, yes, Lord, there is a great harvest you have called us to as ministers. And yet, just as the thorns and thistles affected the food gardens and the labor of it, so we see these thorns and thistles today, even in the harvest of God, where we are navigating this and figuring this out. And it is discouraging, and it can cause us to lose heart. Well, Paul says he does not lose heart, despite these two great burdens. And so we need to return in some ways to the first verse, where he talks about the mercy of God, which is echoed really and fleshed out in the sixth verse, which we'll look at now, which Paul says, how can we not lose heart despite all of us carrying these great burdens in different ways? Our work is hard and the results aren't there. How do we not lose heart? Well, most of you are are familiar with the book, Little Women. It's very funny. Maybe some of you have even read it. And uh, the book and the movies are very important in our home. Uh, We we like them very much. But um, but there's a line in the first chapter of that book where the girls are, or I guess uh, Joe, who's writing the book, recounts her mother. They say the first sound we heard in the morning was our mother, or they call her Marmy, walking around the house, singing like a lark. Beautiful. First sound they heard. And that line always stuck out to me because I can relate, me and my siblings can relate to, uh, to um, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy uh, because... Um, <laughs> Our mother, too, would walk around the house uh, singing in the morning after she would read her Bible and, uh, and, and, and have her morning time and, and just quiet. Uh, she would walk around the house opening the doors and, and singing. And, um, you know, my enjoyment of this went down as the years went by. Uh, in my teenage years, especially, kind of lost enthusiasm for that. But someone remarked to me in the middle of the service, there's worse ways to wake someone up. There definitely are. Um, and some of the songs she would sing have stuck with me just from those moments. And one song she would always return to would be, this had this line in it that is so profound. And the line goes like this. You probably have heard it. You sing this. Turn your eyes to Jesus and behold his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This song comes out of 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 and is the answer to not losing heart. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here now is the mercy of God in our lives, the mercy that first came forth on the scene of creation. The very first thing God ever did was to create light out of darkness, out of no light, out of nothing, so this same God will shine light into our discouraged hearts that are darkened and weary. And and, and this God does this ministry to perfect effect, to answer both burdens that are weighing on us, for he shoots his light, beams it, shines it right into our hearts where we need it, not all around us, not to change our circumstances necessarily, or always answer our prayers but right into our hearts where we can be sustained to keep going, to not lose heart. It's no coincidence that Paul would use this term light, and indeed he has obviously just been talking about blinding, but Paul is, when he talks about light, I think he's thinking of something a little more personal, a little more close to his own heart, indeed his own story, where 
Paul, before writing these letters and being a, a minister, a Christian minister, was actually a persecutor of the church, seeing to it that Christians were removed from their homes, maybe even killed and uh, persecuted for their faith. Indeed, he was on the road to do these acts. And what should happen but light from heaven shines down on him and knocks him to the ground. And Christ himself appears to Paul and says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? What a gracious question from Jesus Christ, the risen Jesus Christ, who appears to Paul in light and both gives him mercy in the question to call him out of that. Christ has already died for Paul's sins, and so he, he takes him and he saves him, and he also commissions him and gives him a ministry. Indeed, Paul is given a mercy and a ministry at the same time, just like you and I have both been called by God in mercy and to follow after him. And this mercy is with us through both of these burdens we talked about this morning. It is the key to not losing heart, though the work is hard. The work is hard, but it is always done in the sight of God. Indeed, before the face of Jesus, as it says in the second verse, the face of God is looking at us even as we openly commend ourselves to others. We, we know of no greater comfort than to see someone's face in a moment of crisis and to see that it it is calm, or it is in line with what the person is saying. Maybe it's a leader in a moment of crisis, and you trust them because you see their face. Maybe it's a, a relationship that you're in, a spouse, a sibling, or someone you're dating, and you, there's an argument or a fight, and what do you need? You need, to, you need to hear forgiveness, but you also need to see their face and have their face match that forgiveness. What do children need? They need their parents to look at them in the face and communicate in tone, in expression, more than just the words of, it's okay. They need to hear so much more than that, don't they? They need to see a congruency with the face. And here is a mercy that God gives us in the face of Christ. This almighty God, even when his children are tired, heart-weary and discouraged, even to the point of becoming detached, from their calling. He can pick them up and look at them in the face and comfort their very hearts. For what now would Emmanuel, God with us, we say Emmanuel, especially during Advent season, remember God with us, God incarnate, Jesus come to earth. But what would Emmanuel mean now, now that he has ascended into heaven, but that Christ still is with us, both by his spirit and with his face, shining in our hearts. Indeed, it strengthens us to take heart and alivens us to continue on. What about when the results aren't there? Yes, Christ's face is with us when the work is hard, but what when the results aren't there? Well, again, Paul's focus even in this burden, even in the second burden of the results not being there, his focus is not on the results, but on the person of Christ the fifth verse, he says, I proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. Here's an important lesson that I heard once from the preacher um, Martin Lloyd-Jones. It is good to remember, and that is as Christians, having a level of objectivity in our work when the results are not coming. It is only natural with those that we love and we're seeking to save and with those that we wish would come to Christ or 
be changed more in his image, that we are burdened, zealous for their change, wanting to see that, but we must not let that desire for that result stop us from proclaiming Christ as king and wrap us up so as to get discouraged or even embittered against this person when perhaps they don't change during this season. It is not as though we say, I'm objective, I don't care. Oh, certainly not. When Paul speaks about the Jews, he says, I wish I was cut off and they were, and they were saved. When he talks about the Jews have not believed in Christ, I wish I was cut off in their place. That is a passionate desire for someone to be saved. And yet, an objectivity to know Christ is Lord. Right now, there is a power beyond what I can do. So the results aren't there. I still trust the Lord. I have an objectivity to where I don't lose heart in this moment because it's not me or my success that I'm proclaiming. It's the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And that takes us back to the face of Christ, the image of God. Paul knows this as his gospel. And this is the gospel that he shares. So church, how great a mercy do we have in the face of Christ being shined into our hearts even as the apostle says. See how God has shown in our hearts to give us light. And so I encourage us, let us not lose heart, but turn to the face of Christ. God has not cast his light around, kind of scattershot for us to find it. Rather, for those who are weary and discouraged, he is upholding. Let us seek his face. Neither does God, he doesn't give his light, kind of turn it on and then switch it off if we're in a rut or fail in whatever grid we have in our mind to be a good or successful person. God is not ebbing and flowing his light towards us based on that, but continues to shine the light of his Savior and our shepherd, Jesus, into our hearts. And what is this light that he's giving? It says it's his glory, but what does it do? Does it, does it burn like fire or does it kind of like switch on and hum like an interrogation, like a light over an interrogation table that you see in a movie, or is it like flicker, does the light flicker or ebb and flow or blow out like a candle? This light remains. It does none of those things. It comforts, it remains in us. It leads us back to the face of Christ to strengthen and establish and uphold us from losing heart. So let us not lose heart, though these burdens are great, the mercy has been given to us where we need it the most in our hearts, both before as we received our calling as Christians, now as we stand in this grace, and after in the ministry we've been called to. And in not too short of a time, the things of earth themselves will grow strangely dim, and we will pass from this earth into his marvelous light, the light of our Savior, Jesus Christ, forever, and behold his face truly. Jesus Christ in all of his glory and grace. Church, would you please pray with me? Lord, this passage is extremely deep. Deep in its subject matter, it, it drives right into our hearts, an area of complexity that in one way we understand our hearts and in another way we can never understand our hearts. So I pray that the mercy of Christ, which has always been and is first and foremost a heart ministry to transform the heart by grace and the forgiveness of sins. I pray that this would encourage us to not lose heart, 
to not detach, but to not grow weary in being good even as we seek you. We need you to continue to do this. We know that you are with us. Praise you for that, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.